All right. Well, hi, everybody. It is the 20th of March 2011. I hope you're doing very well. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. And thank you for your patience as we work through the technical issues with our new Skype setup and new server and all those kinds of juicy things. We will be working to continue to improve things to make it easier for you to listen. But we now have a much easier call-in number and a much easier setup for those kinds of things. So, uh, if um, you'd like to chat, given that we've started a little bit late, uh, I am all ears. I'm going to do a show a little later today on uh, on Libya and uh, some responses to uh, my nuclear program. <laughs> and uh, but for now, let's uh, let's go straight to the listeners. And um, uh, if you have questions or comments or issues, I'm more than happy to hear. I think we're just waiting for him to uh, to call up. Now. Okay. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Okay. Open so, the pod bay doors. Yes, sorry, go ahead. Hey, man, Hal. Okay. How's the sound? Is uh, it better fine. now? Okay. So, um, basically, since the, um, with the earthquakes and, like, when I see on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever, pray for Japan, I get really annoyed. And I'm I'm kind of, I'm ambivalent about it because part of it part of what my thought is is like if you're you know praying for Japan and thinking you're actually doing something and you're not doing something else like donating money or whatever it's really that's just stupid and ridiculous and annoying. Um, but at the same time, like people in Japan right. seem to be feeling comfort from the pray for Japan. They're like, like I've seen a lot of people in Japan, Japanese people saying, thank you for the, um, you know, thank you for thinking of us. Thank you for your concern. Thank you for, um, having us in your thoughts, you know? So I'm, I'm just, I, I, I was just interested in hearing your thoughts on, on the whole praying for disasters, praying for Japan kind of thing. What, um, yeah, what do you think about that? I think that's a great question. Uh, and I know what you mean. Uh, when somebody says, you're, you're in our thoughts, you're in our prayers, there is something that I think is a little bit nice about that. So I think that there's two ways to look at when the statements, you know, I- I'm praying for you. Uh, the first is the one that I think you are legitimately annoyed by. <laughs> and that one is, uh, uh, is that, um, uh, God has uh, punished you, uh, for some sort of, uh, misdeed. Uh, and, um, uh, and so now, uh, I'm praying for God to stop punishing you for your misdeeds, uh, or something like that. Uh, or God actively intervenes in human affairs. And he's going to listen to me more than he's going to listen to you. So I'm going to pray for God to not punish you or not do bad things or to do positive things. That is insulting, of course, because it's like I'm on the in club with God on the speed dial and you don't even have the number. So you have to have me uh, intervene. Of course, the thing that's also annoying about that is that uh, if God can help, then of course, why didn't God just prevent the earthquake? What did the Japanese do that was so bad? Uh, other than, I mean, the one thing I would agree with is is hiding too much wasabi in various pieces of sushi that uh, make bald white men cry. That would be fairly high up on the list of obviously fairly secular sins that the Japanese would be guilty of. But um, uh, 
so, so that is annoying. Uh, it is annoying for sure. And uh, it is uh, the pretense of doing something, and it's very passive-aggressive, you know. And, and I'll pray for you is, is what people sometimes say when they can't defeat your arguments. Like, so when religious people, I get this all the time, you know, like, well, you're an atheist who's going to burn in hell, but I'll, I'm praying for you. It's like, okay, so that's just a passive way of, of saying, screw you, atheist, I can't answer your arguments, so I'm going to take this false moral high road. So I think that is annoying. I think that's legitimately annoying. But there's another side to the phrase, I'll pray for you, or I'm praying for you, or which is basically to say that you're, you're in my thoughts. Uh, I, I care that bad things have happened to you. I can't do a whole lot for whatever reason, but I can send you good wishes. And, uh, you know, I think that there are worse things in the world to hear than somebody sending you good wishes, if that makes any sense. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the point about the, um, the, if you're praying to God, then, like, is it the same God that let this happen? Because pretty screwed up, otherwise, you know, if that's the case. But um, I, I did miss the last point. Um, it just cut out a little bit. Um, Oh, just that people can give you good wishes and that's nice to hear. Like I, it's, it's like a get well card with a sort of a supernatural bent. Uh, not the end of the world. Right, right. So is there like, I don't know, when, when you see that kind of stuff, do you think about it in another way? Like they're using the word pray, but they don't really mean that because pray like doesn't work and what they're doing does seem to have some kind of effect. Yeah, I think that, um, uh, I mean, there are, in, in the realm of religiosity, there, are, there is a wide range of superstition, right? I mean, there are people who are insane, like genuinely mental. Uh, you can see these, not to pick on India, but you see these sometimes, like these guys just sort of dancing up and down, jumping up and down, and wild-eyed and matted-haired, and they're living in holes in the ground and I mean just people who've been so damaged by abuse and culture and superstition that their brains have just snapped like like twigs under a car uh, under a car tire uh, and those people obviously are they may be in a psychotic state where they believe that their thoughts can affect reality and they may be genuinely insane uh, for want of a better phrase and and those people of course are uh, not uh, probably not very open to reason but there are much more secular people uh, who, you know, they, they go to church and, and they, uh, or they may not go to church that much. Maybe they go to church a little bit, or maybe they go to church a lot, but they're pretty secular. Uh, you know, they, they don't pray if their kid gets an infection. They don't pray to God for healing. They go see a doctor. And, uh, you know, if their car gets a flat, they don't, uh, uh, they don't uh, kneel down and pray for uh, Jesus to kneel down and, you know, fix it. Uh, so, I mean, they're very, very sort of secular, and they have a, a compartmentalized part of their mind, which is more around social conformity and perhaps a respect for a certain kind of tradition, uh, or perhaps just um, not wanting to offend their parents or something like that, where they just kind of go and uh, they they like the singing and uh, you know maybe the the priest has something useful to say in the sermon about uh, jealousy or uh, greed or avarice or or anger or something like that. Maybe uh, maybe there's some useful uh, pseudo-philosophy or pseudo-self-knowledge that you can get out of that sort of stuff. And I think that's, uh, you know, there are, there are worse things in the world. Um, I think that it's tragically limited by 
the projection into the supernatural. I mean, that kind of self-knowledge. But right. I think I think remember that there's a wide range, and those people will all use the word a uh, prayer. I think I think fundamentally, it is it is the privilege of the majority to be incredibly insensitive, right? I mean, that's that's I think something really important to ponder. It is the privilege of the majority to be incredibly insensitive. So. Uh, given that there's, uh, even in America, you know, 15% or more of, of non-believers in religion and in Europe, it's as high as 60 or 70 or percent or more. So given that um, uh, that there are so many non-believers in the world, not counting, of course, uh, you know, a, uh, more than a few Chinese uh, and more than a few Russians who grew up without religion, and of course, more than a few Jews uh, who are pretty secular and not religious. So given that Christians, at least in the West, uh, or certainly in the United States, are in the majority. They can use the word prayer without feeling like it might be somewhat insensitive to the uh, beliefs, let's say, of those who aren't religious. Uh, so you you can't, uh, you know, as an atheist, you can't really go up and uh, uh, and reject prayer in public. Uh, that is a very tough thing to do. But as a Christian, you can go up and advocate prayer in public, and that's considered to be the norm, right? So the majority doesn't have to be very sensitive to the feelings and perspectives and sensitivities of the minority, and tragically, that does seem to be the case, pretty much. Uh, so I think that's why the word prayer is used so often. Right, right. Yeah, that uh, that kind of connects to something else related to this for me. That, um, like, when people say they're praying you know, for guidance or something, it's easy for me to just say, oh, you're just having a ecosystem conversation and you're talking to your parts or whatever, whatever language you want to use, you know? It's like, yeah, that's that's something good to do. And, like, I agree with, I think you've said it before, that people that do that are actually probably a little bit more healthy than people who never have that kind of internal dialogue, um, even though there's kind of a disconnection for, about what's really going on. It, it does seem to be kind of a healthy approach to life. But like when they're doing it in regards to this, but, uh, sorry, my point with that was the, um, that I have to, I have to change what that word, that word that they're saying, I have to kind of associate it with the concept in my head where they don't have to do that. Like, because I'm in the minority, in the min because I'm in the minority, I have to be really clear, right? If, I, if I'm saying, if I want to express an idea, I can't say to them, um, I'm praying because they're going to associate that with God. So I have to be very clear. I'm talking to another aspect of myself, another part of myself in that kind of praying for guidance kind of thing. But in this kind of, um, in this situation where, where there's no, um, they're not like talking to themselves when they're praying for Japan or praying for something external, right? They're, I don't know. Well, they certainly wouldn't, they wouldn't put it that way for sure. Sorry, what? Well, they, they wouldn't put it that way. They wouldn't say, I'm talking to an aspect of myself saying, I wish good things to Japan. Because, I mean, that sounds kind of narcissistic, right? Like, I'm, I'm talking to myself about good things that I want for other people. It's like, well, why don't you just go do good things for other people, right? 
Right. So do you think that's what they are doing? They're just like pray, praying for Japan is I'm like, I'm trying to self-soothe about how painful it seems to be, but how helpless I am. Like, yeah, in reality, I mean, is that what's going on? I think the important thing to remember about prayer is that although we see it in the present, it arose from the primitive prehistory of our species, right? And the reason that we have technology and uh, houses and uh, cars and so on is because people wanted to control their environment. They wanted to have an effect on their environment. That's why we just, you know, discovered fire and, and, and learned how to cook and, and wore clothing so that we could have some control over our comfort levels and over our environment. And that's where prayer comes from. Now, prayer, of course, the, the, the desire to have control over your environment significantly predates your actual ability to have control over your environment, right? Right. right? So you want to be warm long before you figure out fire and clothing. And that's why you figure out fire and clothing is you want to be warm. So there's a gap between wanting to control your environment and actually being able to control your environment, right? Right, right, right. And that gap is, um, is very emotionally difficult, right? I mean, we don't face a lot of that in the West. I mean, we have some of it. But we don't have a huge amount of, um, of that in the West. We can do a lot to control our environment. I mean, I can't... The last time that I was, like, really cold and couldn't do anything about it was, like, like 25 years ago when I was working as a prospector, and it was minus 60. I mean, I was cold and couldn't do a whole lot about it. Uh, but that's pretty rare. I mean, we just... You know, even you go inside, you you know, you turn the heat up, you put a some some socks on, you you put on a a, a, a sweater or something. So, prayer, I think, arose from a, a desperate desire to have some control over an environmental issue, and and of course, it has to do with being ill a lot too, right? Like you, your kid gets sick, uh, and up until. I think it was the late 19th century, if you took your kid, if you took anyone to a doctor, they were more likely to be harmed than helped by that doctor. Uh, and so if your kid got sick, and you, you'd have this desperate desire to have your kid not be sick, to have your kid be healthy. And of course, you can't, you know, when your kid gets sick, it's a little bit late just trying to figure out the germ theory of disease and develop antibiotics and all that. You can't do it, right? And so you have this desperate desire to do something, to do something, anything. To, um, to, to feel like you have some control over the environment. And so people turn to prayer. That's the origin of prayer. I, I can't imagine it would be anything particularly uh, different. And so I think to, 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 this is just comes from the prehistory of the species when people didn't have much control. Now, so I can understand why people turn to it. I really can't. But the problem is that it creates a class of people who are generally heavily invested in there not being solutions to things, right? I mean, the degree to which the Catholic Church has opposed science, and in particular medicine. I mean, the Catholic Church opposed anesthesia, for heaven's sakes, uh, because it was an interference with God's plan. At least I'm sure they did until they needed anesthesia, and then they found themselves a magical, funny-hatted exemption. Uh, but it does create uh, a class of people who are dependent upon problems not being solved. Uh, and this is why, of course, the Catholic Church is still opposed to basic things like birth control, because uh, that is a problem being solved. And uh, nobody's a more fervent prayer to God than a woman who doesn't want to be pregnant who thinks she might be so. 
Uh, so I, I think it's important to remember that although we see prayer in the present, it certainly didn't arise in the present, and it's hard to imagine that it would arise in the present. It's just something that is, you know, we sort of dragged behind us like uh, an appendix that unfortunately is still affecting far too many people. Right, right. Huh. Well, yeah, I think I think that's um, that's really helpful. Um, the and sorry, the last that, thing I'll say, so just just to finish up. I mean, and a yeah. lot of religious people will will understand this, right? So if you say, "Well, wait a sec," do you, do you think that your prayers are going to, you know, have God put His ghostly thumb down and squish out the um, the, the problems of the Japanese uh, nuclear plants? And they're going to say, "Well, no. I'm basically just sending good wishes. I'm basically just thinking good thoughts, and so on." And you say, "Okay, well, I mean." You recognize that doesn't change anything in the world. Oh, they say, well, but the Japanese people seem to appreciate it. And you say, well, okay, I guess that's true, but it doesn't actually help them in any material way. It helps them in a psychological way, which is not to be discounted, I'm sure, entirely. But uh, I think most people will say that, uh, that they're not, you know, because everybody who's religious recognizes that if you're asking God to solve a problem, then by definition, God could have prevented the problem and didn't. And they just don't want to go down that path because that is a well-worn, slippery slope to agnosticism at the very least, if not atheism, at the outright. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot of, uh, of dodging around this question if, if questioned by a skeptic. All right, all right, all right. The, the, the thought I just had um, in regards to my own reaction to it and something I, I think I need to just think about um, uh, on my own, but something I just wanted to let you know because you might remember this. Um, it, it feels my response to people saying prayer and how I want to interact with them after I see I'm praying for Japan is similar to um, how I used to uh, go swimming with trolls on the board. Um, it, it feels <laughs> like the same feeling. So, um, yes, yeah, I just <laughs> think that's kind of funny, but. If only interacting with trolls were as dignified as swimming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's more right. like a monkey poo throwing contest with uh, with sandwiches involved. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, I well, think you're right. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I, I was just saying, uh, I was going to say that uh, it, it was swimming. I didn't specify water. Um, <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's a scuba gear from my rectum to my mouth. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but sorry, what were you going to say? Well, I, I mean, I agree with you that there is something provocative to anybody who's rational and philosophical to somebody saying, I'm praying uh, for, for the people in Japan. Because, of course, there is the assumption that you are religious. And that is a pretty rude assumption. Yeah. I mean, there was, I just saw this on, uh, like, scrolling underneath the Fox thing the other day. Uh, I apologize, but Fox was on. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to get a bit of news about uh, Japan. And um, I think some Jewish woman in Congress was complaining that the word Jesus Christ was used a lot in a Christian ceremony. And, of course, they believe, I think, that he was a prophet, but certainly not the Son of God. And so we're told to have all of this sensitivity and um, uh, sensitivity to the beliefs of others. Uh, and, uh, and to some degree, that does go the way of atheism, right, in that some of the more explicit religious stuff is taken out of uh, some public ceremonies and so on. But... Uh, it is. It shows a kind of parochial small-mindedness to go about trumpeting and blaring your religiosity without uh, thinking, perhaps, for a moment that other people may not 
uh, may not feel the same way, may not have the same, may not have the same beliefs. Right. Right. And so that's just, that's one level. I mean, there's many, many levels at which it's kind of annoying. Um, and, and the, the way to find that out is just ask and say, okay, well, do you think that God is going to listen to your prayer and, and do something to intervene in Japan? And that's, that's short circuits a lot of people because it instantly brings up all of these problems with religiosity. Uh, that, that God can intervene, that God does intervene, but God is, is so passive, right? God is, is such a lazy bum. God is so ethically neutral that he won't intervene unless a whole bunch of people nag him to, right? I mean, <laughs> that's really not, you know, if, if, if it's right to, for God to intervene in Japan, then he should be way ahead of, well, first of all, he should prevent it, but let's say he's napping and he wakes up, uh, then he shouldn't need a whole bunch of people to pray for him to do good things for Japan because he's the best and most good and most powerful uh, entity in the universe. And therefore, he shouldn't need a whole bunch of people saying, God, come on, get off the couch, take out the garbage and fix Japan. Come on. You know, he shouldn't really need that. Um, and so uh, there is something annoying about people feeling that they need to get a big ethereal prayer stick and poke God, God in some sensitive spot so he'll finally, you know, put down the Xbox, roll off the couch and do some of his damn chores. Right. And I mean, even if, even if for whatever reason, it's right that um, praying to God after an event, you know, he, he needs the, the encouragement or something, let's say, uh, well, then why aren't you encouraging before the event? Like, why aren't you constantly praying for the whole world so that there's no earthquakes or tsunamis or whatever? And bullshit. But yeah. Right Thank now, the, but the only other thing that we should I see leave ourselves open to is that, uh, and this would be fairly convincing evidence of something unusual, is that if anybody and everybody who was negatively affected by the Japanese quake turned out to be the member of the same Satanist cult, that would be pretty interesting. Uh, again, not holding my breath in any way, shape, or form, but uh, that's something to keep an eye out for. Right, right. Then clearly it would be divine punishment and, and so on. And uh, now, do you have, um, uh, do you have, uh, since you are interested, of course, uh, very closely connected to Japan yourself, uh, right. do you have suggestions of what people can do and where they can go to uh, get the best aid uh, to Japan? Well, um, I mean, I've personally, I've, I've uh, donated, donated to the Red Cross, but I haven't found anything that that useful because. From what I've gathered, actually, um, the Japanese government is, is kind of uh, trying to stop too much foreign help, and I'm not sure why. But um, yeah, I, I don't have any any novel suggestions other than you know Red Cross, Doctors Without Borders, whatever whatever um, charity you think is is a good one to go with. Um, I would if I was there. I would. I think I'd probably want to go up there and volunteer personally. But if I'm not, um, I don't know. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, of course, I think that our our good wishes do go out to the people of Japan. Not that we think it changes anything in particular. If you want to donate, the Red Cross, I think, is a pretty good place to do it. Um, and it is it is tragic. I mean, of course, they're sitting on twenty plus years of economic stagnation. And this, of course, is in the, I think, the, 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 
death toll is, is not insignificant, and the, of course the financial toll is going into the hundreds of billions of dollars. So it is, uh, it is a real challenge. And, uh, you know, certainly it is. Uh, I was watching some of this stuff the other day, just with huge sympathy uh, and, and also huge admiration for the degree to which the Japanese people are pulling together and the degree to which, of course, there's no looting and there's, you know, spontaneous uh, help organizations are being set up and people are helping each other enormously. Exactly as, of course, anarchic theory would predict. Not that I want to sort of turn it into a proof of anarchism. I don't want to sort of exploit the, uh, even at that distant level, they don't want to exploit the tragedy, but uh, there is a huge amount of spontaneous organization that is occurring that is not government-directed, that is people helping each other, which is, of course, exactly what uh, any rational theorist in this area would expect. Yeah, and uh, of course, the um, Japanese government is doing everything in their power to try and uh, make the pain and suffering last as long as possible by... Um, they printed a whole bunch of money right after this happened to stabilize the financial market. Um, they are talking about raising the taxes um, to help, you know, so that they can send more help is what they're saying, of course, but it's just bullshit. And um, there's a lot of Japanese people calling for, like, the people affected by this are, you know, immune to all taxes for five years. There's just, they would, but of course the government won't hear anything of it, but that is not surprising, but frustrating. Well, and then, then what will happen is you'll need a huge ministry to figure out who has and hasn't been affected by the crisis, which will cost a huge amount of money, and people will try and get in and, and quote, cheat, and I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that's not going to happen, but it is, I think it is, you know, tra tragic, I think, that WikiLeaks predicted some of these problems. I think that there were falsified safety reports in the past with regards to these uh, plants, and uh, I mean, again, this is not to say, I mean, what on earth do I know, right? I mean, a tsunami and a massive earthquake, uh, I think that's a little bit beyond uh, what uh, some falsified safety reports or, or inspection reports would solve, but uh, it is, uh, yeah, it is tragic, and it is scary, and I, you know, the one thing I do hope that people get out of this in the long run. It's not likely to happen in the short run. The one thing that I do hope that people get out of this is that um, it is not, uh, these problems are not being solved by governments um, and people are taking care of each other. And that is, uh, I hope that we just, as a species, I hope that we can generate a little bit more love and trust for each other and a little bit less fear horizontally. And uh, Because, you know, fear horizontally leads to allegiance vertically. In, in the political hierarchy. And it really is only when we learn to trust each other and, and expect the best from each other, and, you know, rationally so, in so many situations. Uh, people do become, I think, very heroic and very positive in these kinds of crises. And it is always the dream of any ethicist that the amount of cooperation and goodwill and positivity can continue uh, outside of a crisis. There are even people, I think there's a 912 society in the U.S. that looks back to the amount of uh, cooperation and uh, help and goodwill, and the sort of brotherhood, sisterhood stuff that was going on in the U.S. after 9-11, and find, try and find a way to recapture that. I think that is an important feeling, not that we sort of, you know, want crises to make us do the right thing or to, to, to recognize our common humanity, but there is this desire, I think, that most people interested in bettering the human condition feel, that if only we could maintain the amount of cooperation and positivity and peace that occurs uh, during a, a tragedy or a disaster, uh, then uh, and and even during a celebration, you know, when people are are out in the streets uh, are having a great time and not, you know, say setting fire to police cars, but uh, you know, drinking and dancing and uh, perhaps even making love in out of the way places, that that is a kind of beautiful thing. 
and uh, it is a uh, it is a thought. It's it's a pretty illusory thought at the moment, but it's nice to see that it's possible. And of course, we're working to create situations and circumstances where it can be more sustainable. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, there's someone else in the room who has another question, and I'm feeling pretty um pretty good at this. So thanks for that. That was uh, very helpful to have your thoughts. And, uh, oh, you're welcome. It's a great question. Thanks. All right, so let's um, uh, let's while we're just waiting for the next caller, we've got a call in the chat room. So let me just uh, ask about that. Uh, hey, Steph, would you say that aculturality would be the ultimate cultural state of a free society? Would you agree that eventually, what is now termed a Western culture will be the, the ultimate shape of a free society? A capitalist atheist disregarding to ethnicity rather than proud of it, as encouraged by many statists and semi-statist institutions such as the UN and non-governmental organizations that talk about people's determination, where individual creativity is encouraged rather than any sort of formally ethnic categories. A society where people don't go to eat Chinese, but, and then it sort of runs out, I think. <laughs> and uh, I, am, I am not a fan of culture. Uh, I am not a fan of culture at all. Uh, culture, as, a, as people who've listened to the show for a while know, is philosophically defined as error. Um, or inconsequentiality, right? I do think that um, expressions of human joy will take local form for some time, right? So there'll be, you know, I don't know, Turkish dances and Greek dances and uh, Icelandic dances. And so I think those sort of things will, will continue, but I don't think that people will believe in any significant way that it's better than some other dance or something like that. I think that there will be some local styles of music, uh, Chinese opera versus other kinds of opera. And so I think those kinds of things will uh, will occur. Uh, but I, I don't believe at all that there will be this kind of tribal loyalty to distinctly local customs uh, or, and certainly to distinctly local ethics. So if you want to look at the um, the future of society, what I would suggest is uh, you look at uh, science, right? So uh, a scientist, uh, or maybe even you can look more, more closely at mathematics. If you look at an Indian mathematician and an English mathematician, even if they don't speak the same language, they can do a fair amount of work together just looking at numbers and equations. Uh, and um, there's no Indian mathematics, there's no British mathematics, there's no Western mathematics or Eastern physics. And so there, there may still be local preferences and customs. Uh, there may be little local flourishes in how to write <laughs> certain things. But uh, science is uh, a universal language. Uh, science uh, and mathematics, of course, in particular, is a universal language. And there are still some local customs, but uh, they are primarily language-based uh, in, in the scientific communities. But uh, science itself is universal, and it's accepted as universal. And if it's not universal... Well, it's damn well not science. It's postmodernism. So, uh, so I would say that uh, if you want to look at the future of uh, of uh, human society, look at where science is at now, and you know, go a little bit further than that, and uh, that's where you'll see. Uh, so, th there will be no particular conception that ethics would be different for in different locations. Uh, there would be no particular belief or acceptance that. Um, ethics would be different from person to person. And somebody who said, like in a free society in the future, anybody who says uh, we need a group of people with exclusive moral rights in order to make society secure and take care of the poor and protect the whatever, whatever, 
it would be pretty much viewed as someone coming up and saying, at a physics conference, uh, we need to elect a small number of people to be immune to gravity so that we can harvest clouds and produce better weather. I mean, such a person would be viewed as either joking or crazy. And if they persisted, then they would be viewed as crazy. And so uh, the idea that we, we would promote a small group of individuals to have opposing moral capabilities from everyone else, like the ability to initiate force rather than non-initiation of force. I mean, it's completely accepted right now, of course. But the idea that we're going to promote this in the future, or that this would be accepted in the future, it would just be viewed as crazy. And, and children would uh, completely understand that, that it was crazy. I mean, if you go up to your average five-year-old and say, let's both concentrate and make Billy over there float into the air and be immune to gravity, she'll look at you like, what? And the idea that we should both <laughs> vote and make somebody else immune or have the opposite moral laws than everyone else would be viewed as uh, kind of ridiculous uh, and, and silly and joking, and if the joke persisted, you know, crazy. So uh, that's, uh, I think, the way to look at how things are going to go in the future. Uh, we're, fortunately, we have some examples now, and we know how well it works. Or medicine, of course, medicine, right? I mean, the same sort of thing. We, uh, there are some, but actually, medicine's not perfect because there are some regional differences uh, in, in susceptibility to ailments. It's going to be closer to, uh, to mathematics or physics. All right, uh, do we have another caller? We have another hour in the show. Hello? Hello. Hi. <laughs> oh, so I, I just want to put it out there that I'm, like, super nervous. Excellent. I will try not to be super scary <laughs> for once. Thanks. Well, I had um, a dream about a week ago, and I was wondering if you'd be willing to take a shot at the deeper meanings. Is this, I think you uh, emailed me one? Yeah. Could you, I'm sorry, I don't have my email here, uh, just uh, handy, uh, could you just uh, whisper it to me in the chat room if you're there? Sure. All right. Okay. All right. Do you mind if I read it, just because your sound's a little... No, please. Okay. I will, of course, read it uh, as... Uh, uh, a, a young and highly attractive woman. So let me just let me just get into character here and uh, shift my man boobs around. Okay. Uh, oh, sorry, just one sec. I just have to wait for the chat room to to go back up. Oh, sorry. While I'm waiting for this, um, somebody did ask me last week whether or not uh, Isabella had shown any more uh, indications of of UPB, and uh, I just wanted to mention that she has, but pretty much only in the negative. Uh, <laughs> In other words, she has shown uh, that she completely understands UPB, but only through omission. Uh, so, for instance, uh, if um, uh, if I've sort of been playing with her for an hour or so, and then I need to change her diaper, and then I say, "Well, look, I've you know we've been doing what you want for the last hour. Uh, is it okay if we go and do what I need to do, which is to change her diaper?" Uh, she will immediately change the topic. Um, like so, she recognizes UPB in that she's steering away from it as madly as possible. <laughs> sometimes and uh, so that is uh, that is very interesting and uh, she's experimenting with lying at the moment which i think is uh, is very cool and uh, and interesting and helpful i think i definitely want her to have that uh, that capacity uh, and uh, so uh, she is um uh, she is definitely uh, able to um uh, to recognize uh, that 
absence or to recognize UPB in that kind of way. So uh, I just wanted to mention that she is, uh, you can, in, in a sense, you can see UPB in the same way that you can see how a body fell based on the chalk outline after the body's been taken away. So I just want to sort of mention that. I'm sorry, perhaps you can just uh, read it uh, while I'm uh, trying to gather it here. Sure. Okay. Okay, so I had just come home uh, to my what looked like my parents' house from a challenging but rewarding day at work. And, oh, it's moving. And it had been a payday. I was working for the same boss I have now, uh, but my job was to walk around the city in the rain with my boss and some guy uh, instead of babysitting, which I actually do in real life. It was raining outside, and I was enjoying uh, walking around in the warm weather in the rain. Then I was home in my old living room, which looked like my old living room, my parents' house. Um, I had to use the bathroom really bad uh, since I had to go, like, in real life. Um, um, but so I – sorry, I'm trying to – Okay, so I took all my clothes off from the waist down and just, like, dropped them on the living room floor. And I started running up to my parents' bathroom, even though that was farther away than another bathroom on the way, because I preferred that bathroom. Um, I was worried, though, as I was running through the house half-naked that someone would come home and catch me. Um, but I got to the bathroom in time, even though it was, like, sort of, like, slow run, you know, when that happens, where, like... You can't move as quickly as you want to. Uh, but I got to the bathroom. I locked the door, started going to the bathroom, and then I heard my mom enter the house. And then she was yelling, like, hello, anyone home? And I didn't answer because I was all the way upstairs, and I didn't want to just yell. Um, then I heard more yelling, and I realized that I was witnessing an argument between her and I, but I wasn't, like, saying anything. I was just overhearing myself and her arguing. Um, and I was yelling, you don't understand, I'm not yelling, I'm just upstairs. And she said, don't yell at me, Em. And then she was furious, so she started to run upstairs, like, towards me. And I was, like, I was so scared in the street. And I remember it was just, like, the scariest street we've had in a while. And she was running towards the bathroom. Um, I double-checked to make sure the door was locked so she couldn't come in and get me. And then I, like, was go I was finished going to the bathroom, so I, like, squatted down in the corner um, to, like, hide and curl up on a ball and I was whimpering in my dream and I like heard myself whimpering as I woke up because like soon after this like someone bumped me and I woke up um but so my mom came to the bathroom door and she looked in a window that was at the top of the door which doesn't exist in real life um and she just was peering into the window and she smiled real creepily as if to say like I know you're wrong. I forgive you. Like she used to say that stuff in real life. Um, when, she, when I did something that bothered her. Um, so I just was whimpering and crying and terrified in the corner. And then I started thinking like, okay, where can I go to get out of this house? Cause she's awful. So I was going through my friends, uh, my friends now. I was like, okay, well I could go to so-and-so's house. Oh, but he still lives with his parents. Oh, I could go to his house. No, he's still with his parents. So I felt really discouraged. Um, thinking about getting out of that situation. And that was the dream. I see, I see. Uh, that's good. Very interesting. Do you remember what was, if you could just paste it into the chat room, that'd be great. Do you remember what was happening uh, the day before this dream? Yeah, I wrote that down because I might ask that. Um, okay, so the day before, I, well, I had work the day before. 
um, with the same boss that was in the dream. And um, I felt particularly sad leaving work that day um, because it was it was kind of a rushed leave, um, leaving these two babies. They're 11 months now. And I just get sad leaving in general. So, like, the anxiety around the leaving made it worse. So I remember feeling particularly sad about that. Um, and then I, I hung out with friends that night. Um, I was working through... Uh, some more like leaving slash sadness uh, anxiety about you know leaving people I really care about it's sometimes difficult um, with my boyfriend I was working through that that day and then also someone else a friend had decided like she had just finished packing up her house so that was really significant and I found out about that and then another friend that same day decided to move out of his house um, and then also I took, I participated in a psych study at school that asked about my family's history with psychosis. So those are the, the significant things I could remember. All right. So, so quite a lot. Yeah. All right. Um, so you're working for the same boss you have now. Your job is to walk around the city in the rain with her and some man instead of taking yeah. care of her babies at work. Oh, what does her babies at work mean? Well, normally, uh, in real life, I take care of her babies. I don't walk around the city with her for, you know, so. Okay. Well, while she's at work. Okay. It's raining outside. You're enjoying walking around in the warm weather and rain. Then I was home in my old living room, which looked like my living room. So there's a blend between these, the, so there's the one you grew up in and the one you're living in right now? No, that's unclear. Uh, it, it looked like my parents' living room. Okay. Got it. Okay. I had to use the bathroom really badly since I had to in real life. Oh, you mean while you were sleeping? Yeah. So I took off my clothes from the waist down in the living room and ran up to my parents' bathroom, which was not the closest bathroom, even though I had to use the bathroom badly. And you preferred their bathroom in real life. Yeah. That's interesting. Now, that to me, and just because we're <laughs> toilet training is at the moment, and um, so, and you're probably aware of this, uh, that's uh, how babies... Uh, in a sense, are sort of quote or toddlers how they go to the bathroom, right? Is is you take their their pants off and their diaper off and you sit them on the toilet, right? Yeah. So that's I think is an indication of uh, sort of a very early uh, time in your life. Does that make any sense? Yeah. All right. Um, I was worried as I ran up to the bathroom that someone would come home and catch me naked. Well, not quite naked, right? Just from the waist down. I'm sorry. What? Uh, you, you're not fully naked. You're just naked from the waist down in the dream, right? Yeah. And if it were my dream, next I'd be giving a libertarian presentation with no pants on that I hadn't prepared for. Anyway, um, so let's see. I ran up to the bathroom and someone would come. Okay, I went into the bathroom, locked the door, sat down, and heard my mom come home. She yelled, hello. I didn't answer because I was all the way upstairs and didn't want to yell. Then I heard more yelling. Yeah, just you know what just popped into my head? And tell me if this makes uh, makes any sense. Uh, in families where there are tempers, I find that that it's almost like if you're opposite if you're at opposite ends of the house, and you have to yell at each other, it's almost like you end up angry even though you don't start off that way just because you're yelling. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That happened a lot. Like, right, so, so would, people say, well, why are you yelling at me? It's like, well, I'm not yelling at you. We're just far away, right? Yeah. Okay. Like, yeah, I've, I've, I was talking to someone uh, a while back about um, his family being mad at him 
because he had headphones on and they were trying to get his attention. He was sort of outside and he had headphones on. And by the time they got his attention, everybody was furious. And it's like, but I couldn't hear you. I had headphones on, you know, but it, it's sort of like it escalates. Like people think you're ignoring them when you're just far away or you just have headphones on or whatever, right? Yeah. All right. So you heard more yelling and realized I was hearing an argument between her and I. But how does that, that, that I can't quite understand. So you realize you're hearing an argument between your mother and yourself, but you're not there, right? Yeah. So help me understand that. Well, okay, so I was sitting there and I was like, I'm going to yell because I don't want to get her angry, right? And like, but then all of a sudden, like, my voice is yelling. It, it wasn't coming from me. It was like I was in the bathroom and it was as if there was a copy of me standing outside the door yelling to her and she was answering that copy of me. So, like, the argument happened even though I deliberately decided not to yell. All right, and then you yell. You don't understand. I'm not yelling at you. I'm just upstairs. And no, that was actually, again. that was the argument that I heard. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, it's like you have, yeah, like you have a, a sort of twin who's downstairs talking to your mom. Yeah. So, furious, she starts to run upstairs. I was panicked. She was running towards the bathroom. I double-checked to make sure the door to the bathroom was locked. Squatted down in the corner of the room to hide. And, I mean, it's a bathroom. You can't hide, right? Yeah. I just, like, went away from the door. Right. And, I mean, it's an exquisitely vulnerable position, right? You've got no pants, no underwear, no shoes, no socks. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, it's a very vulnerable position, right? Yeah. Well, tell me what um, what do you think uh, what do you think it's about? Let's uh, let's have you do the show. Um. Well, the first thing that that came to my mind after I woke up was that it was like you know a lot of times dreams are pretty cryptic. This one was really familiar. Like it was just like I mean I was never chased around my house naked, but like um, but we were we were hit on the butt a lot so like that and the humiliation of that was really similar to the humiliation in the dream and that fear was the exact same like the moment you realize that they're angry at you and they're going to do something about it like it was exactly the same it's just like you're pushing it because you're angry at them but then like you push it so far that they they just blow up and then you know like you're going to get hit and like the fear, like when I heard her yelling in the dream, was the exact same as like crap. She's she it, she just got so angry. She's gonna come like attack me. Right, right. Now, something that's quite different here, though, in the dream, which is that you establish a boundary in the dream. The locked door. Right. Yeah. And that changes your mom's behavior in the dream, right? Yeah. Go on. Ugh. You got it, right? Yeah, I think so. When, yeah, like when I locked the door, I guess almost two years ago, when I said like, hey, stop, like leave me alone, stop talking to me for a bit, I want to be on my own. And that was like finally enforceable, like through the police and just running away and having enough, you know, life experience to get a job. They, well, at first my dad yelled over email and then they got really nice. Like recently I got, um, 
an email from my dad, which I didn't read before the dream, but it was like super nice, like to the point that like I started missing like the good parts of him and it's just, it's been mostly like sweet, at surface level sweet emails since the, the defu. Right. Nice. But the the attitude hasn't changed. Like, I'm still the one who's doing something wrong. I, they're waiting for me to come back. Stuff like this. Right, right, right. So, when you have this barrier, right, you lock this door, your mom is... Um, uh, is uh, she changes her tactics, right? So she's no longer physically uh, aggressive or or hitting you, but uh, she is. Uh, she, it seems to me she takes a standpoint of moral superiority, right? Yeah. Like uh, I forgive you. In other yeah. words, it goes from aggressive to passive aggressive, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that all happened when I was out, like after she would get angry and either like me or just when I was older just guilt me to no end after that whole initial like frontal attack I would cry for a long time and then she would come back and she would be like when I was older she would be like it's okay just say you're sorry I forgive you I still love you that was really really common right okay so I think that um, uh, I, I think the dream is is at least your unconscious is sort of saying something like uh, you have um, boundaries now that you didn't have in the past, and the boundaries have changed your mother's strategy or behavior, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, the the challenge is, of course, uh, in, in, you know, if you have the sort of history of uh, abusive relationships from your parents, the challenge is we don't want to change a strategy, Right. We we just, we don't want strategies anymore, right? I I don't want to switch from being hit to being manipulated. That is not progress. At least I would argue that that's not particularly progress. That what I want is an honest examination of wrongs that were done in the past, an honest acceptance of responsibility on the part of the parents, an honest commitment to change, uh, and you know hopefully some therapy for. Uh, the parents and, you know, some way of figuring out how all of these terrible things came to pass and so on. The, a non-defensive, non-aggressive, non-manipulative, uh, non-moralizing approach to trying to solve the problems within the family. Uh, and that is, I mean, it's rare. It certainly has happened. Uh, and at least according to people who've talked to me or who talked on the message board, it has happened. But it's tragically, it's very rare. Yeah. And I th certainly I think your dream does not seem to indicate that it's imminent. Right? And of course, I mean, dreams aren't oracles, right? I mean, but at least that's where I think the dream is um, uh, is, is at the moment, if that makes any sense. It, it's just, sorry, it's what? Well, I, I think that's where your dream is saying things are at the moment. Uh, you know, whether that's true or not, who knows, right? But Because that, that's something that you have to sort of process yourself. But... Uh, I think the dream is saying that uh, the boundaries that you've set up are changing strategies, but not fundamentals. I just, I'm just having trouble understanding that the dream is saying. I heard the dream is saying that changing strategies is not fundamental. No, it's sorry. It, it's, is that if your parents change their 
their strategies, that's not the same as changing oh. their fundamental approach? Yeah, totally get that, yeah. Nice. And um, you said that you'd got an email from your dad before the dream, right? Um, I, let me just check the CD. I don't think I read it before the dream, but it came like... Well, whether you read it or not is... Yeah, it came like two days before or something. Right, so an interesting thing to examine would be the degree to which your dream accurately predicted the contents of your father's email. Right. Yeah. And probably was more important than the other things you were talking about. Yeah, I think it was very accurate. Right. Right. And so, yeah, so I think that um, having people approach you in a sort of, quote, nicer way, but without accepting any responsibility uh, for misdeeds or problematic behavior or abusive behavior in the past is not the kind of progress that we all kind of want from these kinds of situations, right? Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing because, like, when I got his email, there was there was even a, like there was a glimpse for the first time like ever that was like oh maybe you know and oh my god now I get it. <laughs> Go on. Oh, sorry. Go on. Oh, like maybe maybe they might get it. Like there was there was a little hope that came up that I hadn't felt in a while. But it I didn't. think, yeah, I, I would, I would say, and again, you know, I, this is your your family, your situation, and certainly, I mean, no one can tell anyone else what to do in these kinds of situations. But I would say that when people get it, and, and look, you've you've listened to the show before, so you know, and I've had conversations with people who who get it, or even when I get something in the middle of of a solo cast, there is a very strong emotional current when someone gets it it's not you you can't miss it so to speak right yeah yeah it's not something you have to sort of search around for yeah you know it's it's sort of like a fast-forwarded sunrise it's not like blink and you miss it or let's see that one more time and look at the details it's not like you know those uh <laughs> i was just thinking that um, you know, those, those pictures you used to get on menus when you were kids, like spot the differences between these two pictures and you have to kind of really look and, you know, one buckle is, is filled in and one buckle is not filled in and, and all that sort of stuff. Right, right. It's not, it's not that detailed, it's, at least I don't think it's not that detailed or that complicated. It tends to be something that's just like, wow, okay, sunrise, you know, and that doesn't mean everything's solved, but it means that there is room for progress there is momentum there is a potential that's really there and it's almost like you you can't miss that sort of stuff i think yeah yeah well that makes total sense so i hope that uh is, and is, is there anything else uh, i mean dreams you could go on and on i just want to sort of make sure that we get to to uh, uh to where i think the dream was, was oh, no, I think, pointing you yeah that's clear fantastic fantastic I did. I did wonder if you had a thought on the the very last part of the thought about going to my friend's house, and but I realized like they were with their parents as well. 
you mean in the dream uh, you were younger and your friends were with their parents as well? No, they were. I was thinking of my friends now. Like, can I go to current friend number one's house? No, he's with his parents. I don't want to be in that situation either. Right. I couldn't think of a friend that was not not with their foo. Or with a with a healthy family, right? Yeah. Right. I don't know. I'm just trying to mull it over. Because most of my friends are are not in healthy families, or um, or they're just defood, you know. Right. Right. Hmm. Well, I think that the dream would be pointing you back to a susceptibility to this kind of manipulation that would have been part of your life after the physical abuse had stopped, but before you had uh, more adult options. Right, right. So, yeah, I think that's, that's where, I think the dream is saying that that's where your susceptibility to this may be coming from, to that right. particular time in your life. Right. Cool. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you very much. A very, very interesting dream. And yeah, uh, thank you. You know, here's here's hoping that one day you get the email that uh, that they get it. And um, so, uh, you know, I, uh, sometimes it's hard to keep up hope, but um, uh, it certainly has happened in in other families. So let's uh, uh, keep whatever fingers we can crossed. Crossed. <laughs> so. All right. Um, I think we have time for another caller if we have anybody. I haven't seen anything. I've just been keeping half an eye on the chat room. I haven't seen anything in the chat room, but I am more than happy to hear from other callers. As somebody has asked, what do you find is the best way to segue from a policy-based debate to a morality-based debate? Well, I think um, you can ask the blunt uh, question. And the blunt question is, um, uh, do you want this policy to achieve a particular end, or do you think it comes from uh, a place of, of moral idealism? Right, And I think, that's, uh, I think that's, that's a really important question, because a, a lot of people will want policies that they believe will achieve a good end, right? So, for instance, uh, to say somebody says, um, I think that the minimum wage should be raised so that poor people have more money. Well, gosh, who wouldn't want to have uh, poor people having more money? I think that would be great. Um, I mean, as long as it's real money and not fake money. And so if somebody says, well, I think the minimum wage should be raised because I want poor people to have more money, you say, okay, well, is, is it because you just want poor people to have more money, or is it that you think that there's some moral ideal that raising the minimum wage conforms to? So that would be um, my particular approach to it. And if they say, well, I just want to achieve a particular end, then say, okay, then it doesn't have anything to do with morality in particular. It's just you want a particular end, and so let's just make sure that it's not um, uh, that we're not talking about ethics. And now if they say, well, no, it's, it's good to help the poor, it's virtuous, and, and so on, then you can ask them to define what a virtue is. And um, uh, then I think you can get a positive contribution going. Of course, I mean, the number of people who can correctly or usefully talk about virtue 
uh, or ethics or morality or, or so on in any kind of consistent way. Uh, is very, very few people in the world can do that. And uh, so uh, what will generally happen is people will respond in a pretty tense way because they want to achieve something good in the world, but they don't know what virtue is. They don't know what, what philosophy really says in a useful way about goodness and and uh, correctness and wisdom and, and achieving the right things in the right way and so on. And so uh, it's like people really, really want to get across a chasm, you know, they're like <laughs> Evil Knievel at the age of five in his stroller saying, gee, this stroller really needs a jetpack so we can get across the Grand Canyon. And so people are looking across this canyon to, to, to the good life, to, to a virtuous life, to a happy life, to a peaceful life, to a, a good world, a moral world. They're looking across this deep canyon to a moral world. And everybody wants to flap their arms and fly over. And everybody wants to will themselves over. And everybody wants to imagine that if they get a big enough catapult, they can get over. What nobody wants to do, or what very few people want to do, us, I think, being the exceptions of this trend or this rule, what very few people want to do is to knuckle down, turn away from the cannon canyon, turn away from the chasm, turn away from the vision of this better world, and sit down in the shade with a draft, a drafting board, with some equations, with some slide rules, with some T-squares, and actually start to build a bridge across this chasm called the bad now and the better future. And the reason that people don't want to do that, the reason that they, we all want to stand on the edge of this canyon looking at this cloud castle on the far side of a beautiful world, of a free and happy and moral and prosperous world, the reason that we don't want to turn away and go to the dismal little shed of philosophy and start actually building, start actually researching, start actually experimenting, start actually designing a bridge that will someday cross this canyon. It's because when we turn away from this canyon, we turn away with the knowledge that we are not going to get there. We turn away from this canyon with the deep and abiding and sorrowful understanding that it is not us who is going to cross this bridge to this better world. And it may not be our children who are going to cross this bridge when it is eventually built to a better world. And that is a very sorrowful realization to come to, that we can see this better world, that we want so much to live in this better world. But when we turn away to actually start building the bridges, there aren't even mines yet that can produce the metals that we need for this bridge a lot of the physics, sorry, a lot of the engineering is barely invented to build the bridge to this better world. The physics is only partially understood. And when we turn away from regarding this heaven that we want to cross into and live without going through the unpleasant necessity of dying in the religious sense, we are turning away from it 
and looking at the materials that we have, which is three pieces of bubble gum and one stick of balsa wood and going, okay, it's going to take a long time to design. It's going to take even longer to gather the materials and it's going to take even longer to build. And we will not be crossing that bridge. We may not even see it start to go up. We may not even see the materials gathered that are needed to build this bridge to this beautiful world that we all want to get to. And that is, I think, a great sorrow that we all need to face in our own hearts. That we are so far from being able to get across this canyon that the journey of the thousand miles that will start with the single step of us turning away from regarding it and trying to build a bridge of words and intentions and imagination and actually start to get our hands dirty doing the work to do the research, to build the plans that help us know what materials to gather and help future generations know how to start building it. That is a very painful thing to accept. It's a very painful thing to realize. It's what keeps people lodged in politics and religiosity and other things that they fantasize is going to give them a free world. There is going to be no free world in our lifetime. There is not. It is a multi-generational process. And it's very, very painful. It's very, very painful to turn away from the world that we can see but we can't get to and to start building the bridge that can actually get the species across the chasm. So I think that's why. And I hope that that makes some, some sense. It is, I mean, I, it is the greatest heartbreak, really, of, uh, of my life is to recognize that I'm not going to, to live to see it, although I know almost exactly how it's going to look. I'm still not going to live to see it. And uh, I doubt my daughter will, but at some point, people will live there. People will get across that bridge, and people will live there. And they'll look back, and hopefully, they'll toss a few grains of good thoughts and gratitude back at those of us at the lonely and isolated and fractious beginnings of things and thank us for what we were able to begin to build. Uh, Izzy's story of the week, she um, is mastering certain concepts, uh, I think with great alacrity, and um, the one was... Um, the, I think the Greek word for fart is pritz. And um, I did unfortunately let a uh, slow riptide bubble loose uh, the other day. And uh, she turned around and she said, Dad, I made a pritz. And then there was a fairly significant pause and she wrinkled her nose and said, It no smell pretty. <laughs> it's like, yes, uh, that, is, uh, that is quite accurate. And Dada is not farting flowers. That is very true. Uh, all right. Um, what do you, but somebody's asked, what do you believe will be the economic consequences of the earthquake in Japan regarding radiation, a cleanup, uh, Japan running, uh, a, having to ditch a lot of dollars, etc. Uh, I don't, uh, I don't know. I'm certainly not an expert in much, <laughs> but, uh, I will tell you what my, uh, my, my opinions are. I'm certainly nobody can know for sure. Um, let me put on my magic hat of anarchic prognostication and see what uh, what we can come up with. Uh, I predict, and uh, I don't know that this is a truly wild prediction, but I predict that this disaster will be used by Japan and other governments around the world 
to extend and expand their powers over the population, over businesses. Uh, it will be used to print more money, which will go to Japanese, uh, the friends of the Japanese government first and foremost. It will be used to, uh, to raise taxes in order to pay for a cleanup that is going to be almost entirely done by the private sector anyway. It is going to be used to extend regulatory power over more and more Japanese industry. And what that means is that uh, they want more bribes and more uh, campaign donations, right? So as soon as you start to regulate or increase regulations on an industry or threaten that, all that happens is that industry will then begin bribing politicians through campaign donations in order to uh, ameliorate or avoid the worst excesses of the regulations. Uh, I also predict that the regulations are going to end up affecting small companies who did not cause the problem rather than large companies who did. Uh, that is always the case with this kind of stuff. Uh, large companies have enough power uh, and enough economic clout and enough political clout, clout as a result of donations and and uh, cycling industry executives in and out of the regulatory agencies. They have enough power to uh, make sure that uh, whatever regulations go into place uh, eliminate competition uh, or at least minimize competition from smaller and more nimble companies. And when regulatory requirements are raised, the cost of complying with those regulations goes up, of course, and it goes up proportionately larger for small businesses than it does for large businesses, right? So if you need a, um, I don't know, uh, two lawyers to, uh, to make sure you're compliant with something, uh, if you're a small company, that's a significant problem. And if you're a large company, it's not, right? So uh, all of this is going to occur. So it's going to further fuel the uh, corporatist, uh, semi-fascistic uh, feather bedding between the state and large corporations. It's going to increase taxes. Uh, it's going to increase government control over the economy. And uh, this is my uh, particular prediction. And so the Japanese, uh, of course, is the third largest economy in the world after the United States and free domain radio. And uh, so it's going, to, um, uh, it's going to survive and it's going to continue to struggle. I mean, the businesses will still continue to produce despite the enormous amount of regulatory uh, pylons that's going to uh, come down the pipe. Uh, and so they will continue to struggle and they will continue to innovate and they will continue to attempt to grow despite the increasing burdens being placed on their shoulders, they will stagger up the hill of profitability even more. And uh, uh, that's my sort of, uh, my prediction about how things are, uh, are going to work. And we have time for one more. Oh, uh, do, do you see this as the kickoff for the global collapse? I don't know. I don't know. Um, what I thought about Libya... Well, I mean, Libya is um, is depressingly uh, simple. Um, the United States likes stable dictatorships. It does not like unstable dictatorships where the dictatorial nature of the government is in full view. Then it has to pretend that it dislikes the dictator, and it has to pretend to attack the dictator, uh, and then it will um, not change anything fundamental. Uh, so it's just a it's a posture. It's a show. Uh, it's like the um, the cop uh, who is in bed with the mafia uh, and being bribed by the mafia, if the mafia caused too much trouble, he has to go and arrest a few low-level mafia goons to say that he's fighting crime. And um, so that's, uh, it's all too tragic. And of course, I mean, who is, um, who is attacking Libya? It's the United States, it's uh, England, and it's France. Uh, at least uh, those are the ones who kicked it off. And uh, all three of the leadership politicians in those countries are facing declining poll numbers. And whenever you're facing declining poll numbers, what you want to do is go and blow some people up because that gets everyone to rally behind you. And uh, I believe it has much more to do with that 
than anything else. Of course, if uh, America was really interested in helping a repressed minority uh, fight off uh, a kind of totalitarian noose around their necks, um, why wouldn't they have talked much about the Palestinians over the past, say, 60-odd years? Well, because uh, it doesn't fit into the political paradigm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm still mulling over this, um, this sort of global economic collapse thing. I certainly understand that there's going to be more shocks and problems. Uh, but I also do believe that the tax farmers aren't dumb. Uh, they may seem dumb, but that's just because they have to tell so many nonsensical and contradictory things. They have to say, say so many ridiculous things in order to fool the masses or to help the masses fool themselves that they kind of look dumb. But I don't think they are dumb. And I think that um, when push comes to shove, I mean, they're going to start trying to cut frontline services, hoping to get people to get so upset that they're willing to submit to more taxation. But that's not going to work forever. And um, they're just going to... Um, they're just going to ditch the dependent class, and they're going to provide more liberties back to the um, uh, to the entrepreneurial classes. Because, I mean, they're not idiots. They know which way their bread is buttered, and they're not going to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. So they've bought political votes in order to maintain their power uh, by providing benefits to special interest groups. But if the entire system is threatened because there is uh, too much uh, control over the entrepreneurs, they'll simply loosen the shackles on the entrepreneurs, and they will um, ditch the dependent classes. And uh, so I think I don't think there's going to be an economic collapse to that degree, uh, to the degree that, say, you saw in the Weimar Republic, uh, or, or maybe even, I, I don't think it's going to be as bad as the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, of course, there's another example. Libya also is another example of um, just how non-issue the Constitution, what a non-issue the Constitution is, right? I mean, the, the the president just voted to go shoot $100 million worth of missiles into Libya. Uh, I mean, that's that's a declaration of war, if ever I saw one, and Congress has had virtually nothing to do with it. So uh, it just show, it only goes to show again that this is, uh, uh, this is no longer any kind of limited uh, republic. Yeah, I refer to it as a, as a democracy, and people say to me, no, 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 it's a republic, because it's bound by a constitution. And, uh, well, come on, come on. Yeah, and of course the Libyans are saying that children have been hit, and the Americans are saying, "Well, we don't have any, uh, uh, <laughs> we don't have any records of children being hit." And uh, I mean, all of that's complete nonsense. I mean, the the war, the the aggression, right? The 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 missiles going into Libya are not they're they're a mere effect of the true aggression. The true aggression is against American taxpayers, right? Because it is the American taxpayers who are threatened with jail if they don't turf over their money. And so the war, uh, everything which, which costs money in, in military terms overseas, uh, is, is primarily directed at the American taxpayers. And everything that gets destroyed and every person who gets killed overseas is a mere effect of the initial aggression against the American taxpayers. And this is what's so funny, is you see these images of these bright lights going up into the sky, these, these rockets, these missiles going up into the sky, a very, very far away, and, and you think, gosh, that's very remote. And it's like, no, 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 no. That all comes because you have to file your taxes or go to jail, right? That, that, that Everything that lights up in the sky is a laser that was on your forehead. And um, that's, again, you're not going to see any of that in the mainstream media, but that is the basic economic reality of uh, what is occurring. Uh, somebody wrote, 110 Tomahawk cruise missiles launched on Libya by UN forces. Those missiles are about 570 million apiece. Uh, sorry, 570,000 apiece. Insane. Yeah, uh, it is. It is for sure. 
but you have to i mean Gaddafi, of course is a an an evil troll of of you know <laughs> of uh, mordorian dimensions <laughs> but uh, uh you have to um at least recognize the degree to which he understands uh, us military uh, so for for instance he's not fired back on any of the us planes uh, i don't know if he's got the weaponry to do it but if he did it would be insane to do so um because he's not uh, he's not interested in destroying the us economy in the way that some of the other uh, arab nationalists or arab um, uh, insurgents are so he's not firing back on the us which is of course quite wise and what he's doing though is he said i'm giving a million weapons to my citizens now i don't know whether he's got them i doubt it but what he is basically saying is if you invade you're going to face exactly the same kind of insurgency that you did uh, that you do in uh, in iraq and in afghanistan so he understands that uh, U.S. troops on the ground is the only way he's going to be ousted. It's not going to happen from missiles. You don't get regime change through missiles. Uh, so it's only troops on the ground. And he also knows that the U.S. simply cannot get dragged into another endless insurgent ground war. And that's why he says he's handing out all of these weapons to his people. And uh, this, again, is a, a very good example of uh, how anarchism would work in terms of national defense. Because the most powerful military in the world isn't going to go into a country where uh, the people are well-armed, which is why in a free society, if there is even any threat of war in a free society over the long run, which I don't think there is, um, that a, a lack of control or regulation over the arms that people can have would be more than enough deterrent for even a vastly more powerful military uh, to come in. So I just sort of wanted to mention that. Um, hello? Hello. How's it going? What's, uh, what's your question, man? Uh, sorry, what was that? What's your question? Crap, uh, the quality is really low, it's hard to hear you. Yeah, sorry about that, uh, it'll be better in the final release. Alright, um, I just wanted to talk to you about my, uh, problem with procrastination. Um, I listened to one of your podcasts on it, and I realized that I'm just, <laughs> I'm really pissed off at my mom. Yeah, uh, you said that people who are uh, like socially paralyzed are usually really angry, and uh, and I think I'm angry better because back in like seventh grade, um, I was forced to I was forced to skip upper grade, and I, I really didn't want to, and it was just a it was very hard for me to make new friends and everything. People didn't like me, and it was just it's pretty. It was terror, basically. Um, I I just wanted to know how do I get out of this? Because like I'm really angry all the time, and I just I'm just tired of being like this. Well, tell me what uh, like this looks like. Um. Well, basically, I sit in my room all day. Uh, I listen to your podcasts, and I play Xbox, and that's about it. That's all I do. And um, what would you like to do? I I don't know. I I want to get a job. I want to get out of here. I want to go to college. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess that's looking too far ahead. I'm not sure what I want to do there. Well, if you could um, snap your fingers and have whatever kind of life you wanted, uh, what what would you do? Um, I, I honestly don't know. I, 
I guess the CEO of a company, you know, Go on. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Well, that's something. So you would like some sort of financial success um, and some sort of um, authority or, I guess, the power in the business world. Is that right? What was that? You'd like some some money and some power in the business world. Is that right? No, I, not that... I think I just I, I honestly don't know. I uh... let, let me ask you another question. Do you remember when you were a little kid if you had any dreams about what you wanted to be when you were grow when you grew up? Um there were several different occupations that I wanted to be uh I wanted to be an author or a writer, or uh, an architect, an artist, because I was pretty good at drawing. Um, I don't so want to wanted do to be, Sorry, now. you wanted to be an, an author, an architect, and an artist. So basically, you went to the big book of alphabet careers, and you stopped at A, because <laughs> there's some keys, too, you know, baker, um, internet buffoon, which is sort of my job. Uh, so, I'm uh, sorry, go on. <laughs> Oh, did we lose you? Are you still there? Oh, hello. Sorry, uh, I had the stream playing at the same time. I was listening to you on Skype. So. Oh, no problem. Okay, so so uh, you you had some good ambitions and some high ambitions, right? You didn't say like I I want to be a waiter because you know that's further along in the alphabet. <laughs> yeah. So you you wanted to be since you couldn't be an aardvark, you wanted to be an author. And uh, and so on, right? So so you, obviously you're intelligent and uh, you're ambitious, and you want to do some important things with your life. Is that at least that's how you started when you were a kid, right? Yeah. And um, so what happened? Oh, what didn't happen? Well, I I was getting, you know, I was doing well academic. I was doing well in school up until the seventh grade, which is when I got skipped up. After that, I, I was just I was so angry that. Everything just went downhill. I started getting F's in class. I uh, I came home depressed every day. Uh, I didn't want to do anything after that. Right. Now, listen, uh, I just uh, I want to tell you about me, because remember, it's all about me. But no, I just just because I think I understand. Uh, when I was uh, in England, I was in private school, uh, boarding school for some time. And, uh, you know, however brutal it may have been physically and emotionally, academically, it was quite good. And when I came to Canada... Uh, I, I was I was in Whitby for a couple of months, and I went to school there. I was in grade eight. Then when I came to Toronto, I was put back in grade six. Ugh! I had two grades back, and uh, and uh, I tried to sort of get out of it. But you know, what am I going to do at the age of eleven, right? So, uh, so I think I sort of understand. I wasn't sort of put forward, but uh, I was put backwards, and that was that was pretty brutal to do a lot of that material again. Um, and I, I thought for a while that I was angry at the school and. Uh, uh, that wasn't the case for me. Yeah, for me either. Uh, I'm pretty sure I was just mad at my mom, mad at my teachers. Right, right. So, yeah. um, so what was your mom doing when you were getting F's and you were coming home depressed every day? Well, I remember the first time I showed her my report card. She, uh, she was pissed off. She was, uh, 
yelling at me. My brother is in the car. And my brother was like, well, maybe he just doesn't know the material, Mom. And she said, no, that's not it. He's just pissed off that I made him do this, and now he's procrastinating. He's not doing his work. Right. Right. So she felt that it was a form of passive aggression on your part? Yes. And what happened from there in that conversation? Um... Well, I mean, she, you know, she was saying all the time about it, but nothing really happened. I just more yelling every time I brought home a bad report card. Right, right. And then? Um. Well, uh. All the way up until my senior year of high school, I was still getting bad grades, but senior year I dropped out because uh, around then I started listening to your podcast and I, you know, it helped me realize why I was angry and why I procrastinated and everything. And I pretty much, I, I had this big conversation with my mom that year and I told her how I felt, how I was depressed all the time, how I had a thoughts of suicide before and she was crying and I remember she said um, and I told her I was upset because of the way she treated me um, and how she got angry and how she yelled and she said um, Jacob I promise I'll change if you promise to get good grades or something like that <laughs> I remember saying okay and going back to my room and thinking I, I, I thought if she truly loved me she would she would just she changed because she wanted me to be happy, not because she wanted me to get good grades. If that makes sense. I don't think that she should change because she wants you to be happy. I don't think that's I don't think that's a fair expectation for somebody else. I could be wrong. I mean I'm just I'm just giving you my initial opinion for what it's worth. I don't think that anyone should change to make you happy. I think that people should change because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, you were uh, miserable and you were failing in school, which is not to say failing in life. Good God help us if that's the case. Right. But um, you were uh, miserable and unhappy. And um, I didn't handle it the best way as a parent in any way, shape or form. I yelled at you. Um, obviously, you were yelling at depressed people. I mean, there's no sane person in the world who will tell you that yelling at a depressed person is the way to solve their problems, right? Yeah. And imagine, I mean, if your mom's down about something and you yell at her, how would she react? <laughs> Don't you dare yell at me, right? <laughs> she wouldn't be happy. She wouldn't be happy, right? So she knows that this is not how you motivate people. But, you know, let's let's give her the benefit of the doubt and, and say, okay, well, that's the very best that she could think of at, at the moment or at the time. But later you say, okay, well, that wasn't the best thing to do. That wasn't the right, that wasn't good parenting to, to yell at my depressed kid when he's not fitting in at school, right? Yeah. And so people, I think, should, should attempt to, to do better or to change because, not just because what they did didn't work, not just because it made somebody unhappy, because, 
you know, there's things that I do that make people unhappy, but I strongly believe that they're the right things to do, and I can't gauge what I do based upon whether it makes people unhappy or happy, because that's not what philosophy is. It's, an, it's not a popularity contest. Uh, so it she shouldn't change because it didn't work. Because that's to say that there was no way to know that it did, wasn't going to work at the time. And of course it was. She knew exactly that it wasn't going to work at the time, because if you tried doing it to her, she would have been really upset, right? Yep. So it's like, okay, I, I missed the boat. I didn't step up when I needed to as a parent and take care of my kid at the time, and it's had some negative impacts. I mean, you've talked about suicidality. I mean, that's pretty that's pretty catastrophic. I mean, that definitely is not where you want to be as a parent, where your kid is so depressed and listless that um, that suicidality is coming into his head, right? And I, I just, I want to, I don't know, reach out as, as best as I can and uh, just tell you I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry that you face this amount of stress and this amount of negativity and this amount of dysfunction that your life in a sense, turned into a kind of ash in your heart or in your hands. I just, I, I really, really want to tell you how sorry I am that Thank you. that you've that. experienced that, that, that you've had those thoughts, that, that you've experienced that. And obviously, obviously, if those thoughts ever come back in a strong, I mean, call a hotline, get, get the professional help that you need. And of course, I think therapy is, is great for just about anyone who wants to achieve anything significant or remarkable or even non-dysfunctional in their lives. So, I, look, I just, I want to not gloss over that because it's a very powerful word, suicidality, and I don't want to pretend I didn't hear it, and I don't want to pretend that it's not incredibly significant. So, I just wanted to, to pause at that little grave and, uh, you know, put a couple of flowers on it, for want of a better phrase, and to say, just to tell you, you know, person to person, how incredibly sorry I am that you face that kind of extremity that is a, a very, very difficult and chilling thing to go through, and I'm, I'm so sorry that you did. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I, was, I was... I'm starting to get some now. When I, when I was a kid, I, you know, she yelled, and she didn't spank me often, but... Uh, Every now and then she spanked me, and uh, I think, and this is just a theory, uh, I haven't thought about it enough, I think I was only getting good grades in school because I remember when I brought home that report card that uh, she was really she was really happy when she saw the A's. <laughs> and, uh, and my older brother, he was always, he always got bad grades in school. And I, I always felt, like, proud of myself for doing better than him. Well, I'll tell you something that occurred for me. Again, I don't want to make this about me, but I, I, it, it popped into my head, and I, I think it might be. No, I appreciate it. I think it might be something useful for you, right? So, because I'm no, th I'm no therapist, no psychologist, so I can talk about myself till the cows come home, and hopefully, it'll be of use to you. When I was a kid, I was really into uh, a painting and drawing, and I did a lot of it. And uh, I even remember I dragged an entire door home once because I wanted to paint a landscape on it. And I actually did quite a bit of a landscape on it. And I had a chalkboard and I had, I did lots of drawing and I, I did portraits even up into my 20s and so on. But I remember when I was a, a kid, I, I had drawn something nice, uh, something I think pretty good on the easel. I think like most people who get into drawing or painting, you have something in your head that you want to draw or paint and what you come out with on the page is just horrible. I remember I wanted to draw a rosy-cheeked, I wanted to paint a rosy-cheeked child going down a, a, a snow on a sled. 
and I wanted the cheeks to be so red that you could almost tell the temperature of the air. Uh, and I remember when I was like six or seven, I was at boarding school and I, I painted with these, you know, big thick paints and it was just like this big black circle with a sled under. Like it was just looked terrible, right? Compared to what was going on in my head, it was such a huge gap. And when I was home, uh, I would uh, draw and, and use, ch I try and do chalks and I did sort of um, some watercolors and I did some graphite work and so on. And I remember once my mom got so mad that I had, I think, gotten some chalk on on some, I can't remember, it was the curtains or something. I guess I had walked over to open the curtains. I had chalk on my hands. My mom got so mad and you know, beat me up and all that kind of stuff. And I remember afterwards sitting on my bed and I, I was sort of back against my pillow. I think I was six or seven. And my knees were up and I was hugging my knees and I was shaking because, you know, crying because it was, it was painful. And... I was looking at my easel, and there was a picture of um, a, a trees uh, and mountains, and there was a nice soft moon up in the top right-hand corner, some little stars, and I thought the perspective was pretty good on the trees, and the, you could see some ripples in the water, and the moonlight was sort of reflected in those squiggly lines that you make when you're a kid on the water, and I thought it was a nice little picture. And I said to myself, I said, you know, this is the last picture I'm ever going to make. And I'm so mad at my mom, and I'm so mad at my circumstances, and I'm so mad at my dad, I'm so mad at everyone, that I'm on strike. And if this easel is never cleaned, what people in the future are going to do is they're going to look at this easel and they're going to say, well, there was a great talent that never came to fruition. And I think part of me thought that the world was going to look at this great talent that didn't come to fruition, and look at my mom and say, what did you do to break this talent? What did you do? And they would be like spotlights on her and people would get mad at her because my, uh, because I was no longer going to be an artist. And people would, would see what had been lost from the world and the potential and they'd get mad. And of course, none of that ever would have happened if, even if I had stopped. And of course, within a couple of days, I was, I was painting again because... I, I liked it, and, you know, I, I sort of got that surrendering it for the sake of a beating wasn't the right thing, wasn't the right thing to do. So when your mom said that, well, he's just mad at me, and that's why he's getting bad grades, I wonder if there may not have been more than a grain or two of truth in what she was saying. Sorry, could you say that again? I wonder if there might not be a grain or, of truth in what she was saying, that because you were so mad at your school, at your environment, and look, I get that it's not about skipping a grade. I mean, lots of people do that, and they don't end up in that state, so it's probably a lot more than that. But what if you are punishing authority figures in your life by underachievement? What if? I don't know, but what if? Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, just the smallest thing, I'll think, what will my mom think if I do this? And as gross as it is, like just taking a shower, I'll be like, she probably wants me to take a shower. Let's not do that today. I and it wasn't it wasn't even conscious before, but until I heard one of your podcasts and you talked about it, and uh, yeah, it's it's that bad. 
And I, I get it. I mean, I, I think I get it. I mean, I, I, as much as I can get it over the freaking phone, I always want to see people's faces, right? But, but I think, I think I really get it. I get the degree to which resentment and a feeling of being bullied and controlled and ignored. And also, I think if your mom took a great deal of pride in your achievements, then if you're mad at your mom, taking away those achievements is a way to get back at her, right? Yeah, that's true. But uh, tell me why that is insane <laughs> in the long run. I mean, I get it. I get it. I I'm not, right? But, but you, you tell me how that is so going to fucking not work in the long run. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm screwing myself over when I do that. Well, she wins, right? Yeah. I mean, you think you think you're winning in these little victories, right? But, and look, I'm not saying that she wants your life to be a failure. I'm not saying anything like that. But in this mental battle that you've got going on, yeah, you certainly don't come out the winner, right? Yeah, it's, that's true. But But tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me everything it's going to cost you of your life if you continue this way. My happiness. I mean, that it, it, it sounds really simple. Um, no, it's pretty pretty complex. Happiness is a very complex thing. But go on. Yeah, everything. My ambitions, my goals, and that's redundant. But yeah, all that. Throwing all of that away. Right. Go on. I'm guessing you're in um, your 20s, sure. right? You late teens or, or, or in your 20s? Uh, I'm 18. You're 18. Okay, tell me what this looks like at 40. Tell me how your life looks like without change when you're 40. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to... When I'm 40, it'll look like I'm listening to your podcast, so hopefully you're still alive. And uh, <laughs> Not that old. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, still playing Xbox. So, and yeah, like with the other two guys who are mad at their mom who are still on Xbox in 20 years, right? <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but go on. Sure. Uh, and what about when you're 50? Yeah, same thing. Okay, Although what about when you're 70 and you're looking back on your life and your mom is long dead? Uh, I screwed myself over and she's dead now, so it doesn't matter. Right. Don't do that, man. I know, I know it's tempting. I know it's tempting. But it is, in my opinion, and this is a very strong opinion, it doesn't make it true, but it's a strong opinion, my friend. You cannot relinquish control of your life to the people who've hurt you the most. Because that means that it will never stop. Right? Yeah. You can't live grade fucking seven over and over and over again for the next 60 years until you until they drop you 
in a damp, wet coffin marked Here's Lies, Grade 7. It never, ever ended. You can't relinquish your life to people who've hurt you, to people who've made you angry. I mean, you can, obviously. It's, it's physically possible. But, of course, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, so I don't want to insult your obvious intelligence. But the only person who fundamentally suffers in the long run is you. And the victory that you achieve is not even close to a victory. It's a dead, complete, and total loss. And to, to cut your own legs off because people have yelled at you to run means that you never get to run. Yeah, that is pretty ridiculous. But understandable. Again, I'm not saying you're crazy. It's understandable if you're that angry. It's understandable. If you feel that disrespected, if you feel that unsupported, I, I, I understand it. I really do. So I don't want you to think like, oh, what I'm doing is crazy and that makes no sense. It makes sense. It makes sense. But it's like if somebody keeps yelling at you to play piano and then you say, oh, I'm fine, I'm going to cut my own hands off. It's like, okay, so you don't get to tie your shoes. And maybe if you're not getting yelled at, you really would like to play piano. Maybe you would really enjoy the challenges and risks of ambition. But it feels almost like, feels with me almost like that you have a black smoky-eyed devil called vengeance sitting where your heart should be, where your passion should be, where your ambition should be, where your I want to spread my wings and take flight should be called vengeance and that vengeance I sort of get an image of you down a well and vengeance is sitting on a manhole cover on top of the well and won't let you out and yeah I'm saying blow that sucker off vengeance and I have had times in my life where I have felt very strong desires for vengeance. I have a temper <laughs> at times. And I have been unjustly treated in my life. And I have had great desires for vengeance. But vengeance cuts off your future because vengeance is all about history. Vengeance is all about the past. Vengeance is all about things dead and gone, dried up and bottled in time that can't ever be changed. Right? Yeah. Nothing, nothing that you achieve in terms of vengeance is going to make your teenage life any better because it's all done and gone. Right? It's not going to change anything. Yeah, it's true. But what it will do what, what vengeance will do is not only will it not change anything in the past, it will mean that the future becomes a photocopy of the same day in the past over and over and over again. Yeah, I, I don't want that the best. I think it's been a year since I dropped out. It's just, 
one giant, it's not a blur, but it just seems like each day is indistinguishable from the next. And you're still living so, at home, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Right, and um, so I, I'll tell you what, you know, because, I mean, I've given you some fruity metaphors, which, you know, so what, right? Uh, maybe they're helpful, maybe they're not. But I'll, I'll tell you what I would suggest from a practical standpoint, okay? I think that you have to look forward in your life. I, I, I know that it's important to deal with the past, and I'm not saying forget about the past, but there's... If, if the vengeance theory is correct, uh, you know, who knows, right? But if the vengeance theory is correct, then uh, it's, not, it's not going to achieve what you want, right? Because you're not punishing your mom fundamentally. I mean, maybe you are, but, but fundamentally, you're the one who's suffering, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, um, your mom is at least to some degree participating in this, in that she's not willing to do change at any cost, right? It's conditional, like if your grades get better or whatever, right? Sorry, what was that? Well, your mom is to some degree participating in this because she's not saying, like, change, we have to change this no matter what. Your life is not starting the way it should. Uh, you're not uh, pursuing and achieving things the way that you should or the way that, that I want you to. And so whatever we need to do as a family to remove this roadblock, if I have to go into therapy, if I have to, uh, I don't know, go take uh, Prozac through my ears, uh, I'm going to do uh, to make sure that no matter what happens, your roadblock, your roadblock is removed for the future, right? So she's not doing that. Uh, so to yeah, some degree, she, she's... Yeah, she's not... I mean, right. uh, so she's, she's, she's participating to some degree in this cycle. So I don't think it's reasonable to wait for change to come from your mom. Yeah. So this is what I, I would suggest. First of all, you need to fucking panic. <laughs> right? You need to panic. As you say, the last year is a blur. And I think you understand that without change, your life is going to dry up and blow away. Right? Yeah. I don't want that for you. You don't want that for you. Because you can pull this shit off when you're 18, but you can't when you're 38, and you can't when you're 68, <laughs> and you, right? You can't. Yeah. And so I would suggest you didn't finish high school, right? Right. Okay. You need to finish high school. I'm just yeah. going to, I'm going to lay it out for you, and then you can tell me that I'm an annoying and bossy idiot, and maybe I am, but I'm going to tell you. Uh, I value your opinion. Okay, you need to finish high school. Um, you, I don't know whether you have to go back. God help you. <laughs> Although I guess now, you know, what's interesting is that if you finish high school now, you're finishing it in the age that you would have been if you hadn't skipped ahead of grade, right? That's true. So it's like, okay, fine. You put me ahead a year, I'll stay back a year. But fine, only make it one year. <laughs> that was my original mentality, yeah. That's right. Yeah, that, yeah, that's what I was trying to do the first year, just get held back. Yeah, yeah. So, so that, that, there's your victory. You know, you got taken a year, now you've gotten a year back, and so you're on equal playing field and you can go ahead with your life. So, yeah, you can get a GED, or as Chris Rock calls it, a good enough diploma. <laughs> so you can get a GED, but you need to finish high school. And it's not because I think there's anything hugely useful in the last year of high school. Uh, I don't think there is hugely useful stuff in the last year of high school, 
but it is unfortunately based on the system that we have it's just a minimum uh, requirement for doing anything right whether you want to go to college or not or whether you want to you need to finish high school in my opinion so um because otherwise how are you going to get into the army <laughs> i'm just kidding right so so uh, you know pick up the phone like i know it's sunday right but but get the number after we talk uh, of your local high school or wherever i don't know how the hell you finish high school but call them and say listen i need to finish high school and maybe you have to go back maybe you can do it while you're working or maybe you can do it at night or whatever right but you need to finish high school because no matter what you want to do in your life that's going to be something you don't want to have to keep answering questions for the next 10 years about why you didn't finish high school. Does yeah. that... Uh, look, I, I'm not asking you to agree with me. I'm just asking you like, if you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah, I do agree with you. Okay. Um, you need to find ways to begin to let go of the anger. And look, it's a bullshit thing for me to say, as just about so many things I say are complete bullshit. But... But you need to find some way, because the anger is is eating you, right? You know, there's this actress, Sharon yeah. Stone. You don't know her because you're young. <laughs> but she may still be alive when you're 42. I don't know. But there's this actress, Sharon Stone, who said about fame, you think it's feeding you, but it's eating you. Right? There's this thing about anger, right? You think it's feeding you, but it's eating you. Right? Because anger is, is, is healthy, I think, and, and appropriate in a sort of fight-or-flight situation. But when it becomes chronic, it's like chronic stress or chronic anger or chronic sadness, which I guess is a kind of depression. When things become fixed, it's because our thinking has become circular. It's because we go from A to B to A to B to A to B to A to B, and we don't break out of that circle. And that's why the days all seem the same, and that's why distraction, like Xbox, is so tempting. Because we can't break out of our own cycle of thinking. We brood over past wrongs. We, we think about things we could have done differently or things that other people could have done differently or ways in which we should have handled things differently. Or, you know, we go round and round and round and we can't find any escape from that circular thinking. And so what we do is we, 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 we just try and jump ourselves out of it by distracting ourselves with video games or, or drugs or sex or drinking or any kind of sensation, mountain climbing, I don't know what, right? Shopping. We try to just break ourselves out of this cycle. Because we can't do it on our own. You know, it's like, uh, here's a metaphor you won't know because it's about records, right? So records, you know, they, little, they go round and round and then they get stuck, right? And then it's like the only way that we can change it is to drag the needle to get some sense of sensation or difference. And then it just goes back to being stuck again. And I don't think that's, you know, that is obviously not where you want to be uh, in the future. So, um, you know, I always talk about uh, therapy and I would strongly recommend it. I don't know if you're in, if you're in high school or even if you're taking it remotely, you might have access to some counseling resources. Hugely and strongly suggest that. If you can't uh, get a hold of any of that kind of thing, you know, talk about it with friends that you trust. Talk about it with, with anybody, uh, who's reasonably trustworthy, who's willing to talk about self-knowledge and growth in this kind of way. Um, there's works that you can do. John Bradshaw has some self-help books. Nathaniel Brandon has some self-help books, which are sentence completion exercises or ways that you can figure out what's going on deep down in the dark recesses of your smoky heart. And I would really strongly suggest you can get those from the library and maybe photocopy some of them. It's real cheap. And uh, it is a way for you to begin to really figure out what's going on for you, why you're stuck. Get an outline of the boulder that's in front of your future that you can't get around, that you can't burrow through. So I would, um, you know, really strongly suggest that it is time to panic. And I think panic can be a very healthy emotion. I think that it's very necessary. Uh, I think that you need to cut back on your video game playing because, as you know, 
uh, it can eat up the hours with not much to show for it. And don't get me wrong, I like a good video game, but um, but not at the expense of, of getting done what you need to get done to have a good life, right? Yeah. Right, you want to, I mean, you want to have uh, an education, at least some some form of it. You want to have a job so that you can ask a, woman, a, a, a girl out and, and show her a good time and all that kind of stuff, right? You want to start... Um, yeah. You know, walking tall as a, as a young man with, with his eye on the future and a way to build a life where you can get the things that you want, whether you want to be an architect or an author uh, or an ad man or, I don't know, I'm running out of A's because I don't know, I don't know, an astronaut, I don't know that many careers, right? But but I want to, uh, to, to really strongly encourage you that you're going to need to just do a little bit of willpower here. I mean, I think that you need to do the inner work. Because you can't just will yourself through life. You need to do the inner work to figure out what happened, why you're stuck, why you keep going round and round, and what vengeance is helping you avoid, right? One of the tempting things about vengeance is it keeps you focused on the past, which keeps you from being afraid of the future. But I think it's okay to be nervous about the future. In fact, I think it's important to be nervous about the future because when we're nervous, we tend to double check, triple check everything. Like I want my pilot to be nervous before he takes off because I want him to check, triple check everything. And so when we're trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives, I think it's good to be nervous. So to focus on the future and to be nervous about it, to be scared of it, to be alarmed about it, I think is good because it means you're going to really be careful and double check and triple check what it is that you're doing. But I think as far as just getting started goes, uh, I think that it's important enough to, to, to make the call to get the process of getting your education complete out of the way. You know, if it pleases your mom, it pleases your mom. You know, I mean, it pleases your mom. But the important thing to focus on is not whether it pleases or bugs your mom, but what it's going to do for your life and your future and what it is that you want to achieve in the world. To base such fundamental life decisions as education and career on whether your mom likes it or not, you know, you know, you know that that is not going to achieve anything. And unfortunately, it gives your mom way too much power for an 18-year-old young man to have, right? I mean, yeah. just imagine, ima just picture this. I'll just give you one last image before we close off, right? But just picture this, right? So you're, you're on the, you know, let's say a year from now, you're, you're on a date or whatever, right? The woman, you're, the, girl, the woman you think she's great, you know, she's really great. And then after 20 minutes, you realize you've just spent the last 20 minutes complaining about how overbearing your mom was and is and how she controls your life and every decision you make is based upon whether your mom's going to like it or not and you hope that she's not going to like it because that's really satisfying and you're talking about all this kind of stuff and then you look up, you know, how's the woman going to look? <laughs> if she's even still there, right? Yeah. Um, don't, don't be that guy, right? Don't be that guy who's complaining about his mom when he's 30. Yeah, I don't Yeah, because, I mean, that that's going to be like the woman's going to be reaching under the table for the eject button uh, for herself, and uh, you don't want that mess on the ceiling. Well, uh, thank you, Steph, for talking with me. Listen, I, I hope it works out. Uh, I would, you know, get, if, get, get some therapy under your belt. And if you can't, get some self-knowledge under your belt. I, I think that it shows, I think it shows pretty well on your mom that she was at least willing to admit fault if you'd get better grades. I mean, at, at least there's, there's room in the conversation for fault being admitted. Uh, that, that, that's not so bad. You know, I've heard a lot worse uh, on this show. And so, uh, you know, when you get some of this knowledge under your belt, 
uh, I think it's, you know, it may be worth reopening. In fact, I'd strongly suggest reopening the conversation with your mom uh, and try and figure it out. And ask your mom about procrastination. Ask your mom about what she has achieved or not achieved in her life and how she feels about it. You may learn a lot about yourself by asking your parents about themselves, right? Not not asking them about you and what they did to you and what they did about you, but just asking them about themselves. Uh, I, I, again, I've mentioned this before, but I had I had a seven-hour conversation with my dad where he talked about his life independent of me and why he did what he did and the choices that he made. And it was a little chilling how little I showed up in that. But I learned a lot about myself just by listening to my dad talk about himself, not himself as a parent in relation to me, but just himself as a human being independent of me. And it gave me a lot of relief. And so you can ask your mom about her own, you know, procrastination or her, her own ambitions or her own frustrations, you can learn a lot about yourself and it can be quite a relief to know that your parents came into their relationship with you with their own baggage and that it really wasn't all about you and there were a lot of times they were just bouncing off stuff in their own past. Uh, I think there's a lot of independence and freedom in that. It makes it less personal, if that makes any sense. I think I just heard you're angry, sure. But okay, it's just, I'll, I'll leave it there. But uh, I just wanted to sort of mention that as a possibility uh, in, in the future. So uh, listen, thanks everyone so much as always for, I mean, just amazing honesty and openness and just great, great comments and questions. I, I just, I feel so stimulated by this uh, listenership that uh, I, I just, I consider it just such an enormous honor uh, to be able to have people talk to me about really what they're thinking and feeling. And I'm obviously happy that what I say has some use from time to time. And thank you, everybody, for making all of this, all of this uh, possible, this truly amazing philosophical conversation. Freedomainradio.com forward slash donate, uh, just to put in my last uh, humble begging uh, as monkey philosopher dancing for food uh, request for donations. Uh, I really do appreciate everybody's support. Have yourselves a truly wonderful week, and we will continue to try and work on show quality issues. All the best, everyone. Bye-bye.